Hello and welcome once again to the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. In this episode, we are talking winter stripers on the lower Roanoke. I'm going to be talking with longtime friend Captain Richard Andrews of Tarpam Guide Service. And we'll be talking about such topics as fish arriving and leaving, river morphology, sonar as a verification tool, understanding river level, and then we'll be moving into terminal tackles. So that is quite a heady list that we have in store for you in this podcast episode. I'm Gary Hurley of Fisherman's Post, and Fisherman's Post has been serving the saltwater fishing community of North Carolina since 2003. We've been bringing you fishing reports, fishing information, fishing tournaments, fishing schools, and now in this latest and greatest chapter, the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. And it is in this podcast series that we reach out to our captain and guide friends from up and down the North Carolina coast and ask them to share with us their insights, their knowledge on how to catch more fish more often. And with the other goal, not just more fish more often, but the other goal of getting you and your family and friends out on the water, spending more time together more often. And I am joined this episode, just as I am every episode, with Billy Thorpe of Co-Pilot Studio. Hey, Billy. What's going on, Gary? Good to see you, man. It is good to see you. It's good to see me. I'm glad you got to see me. <laughs> something stupid. <laughs> I'm just going to sing you something stupid to say every time you introduce me. I like that tradition. You know what? Fisherman's Post got this big introduction. I'm going to be like, I'm Billy Thor. been doing podcasts for 40 episodes here at Fisherman's Post or whatever. 45, 48, whatever this is. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to have to edit all this crap out. What's going on, man? You've been doing all right? Yeah, man. Excite, <laughs> excited for a new year yeah. and especially excited to talk to Richard tonight, man. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm excited. I'm also excited about telling people how to watch, how to listen. And if you don't know how to do one of those, then I'm here's a list of places. Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube is where you can watch, and then uh, Google uh, Podcasts as well. Uh, so go, be sure to subscribe to these channels. That really helps us, helps with the algorithm. If you love what we're doing, share the show, copy the link. I made it really easy in the YouTube subscription or uh, description, rather, in the show notes there. Just copy the link, share it with a friend. And um, yeah, man, we're having a great time doing all this stuff and promoting it. So help us, help us promote it as well. Word of mouth's the best. Yeah, man. This yeah. is it. We're thoroughly enjoying it. Everything about it, the interaction from our viewers, our listeners, and the sponsors. And our sponsor, speaking of, our sponsor for the e this episode is Marine Warehouse Center. Love those guys. Let's pay the I'm light bill, Billy. Pay the light bill. I'm going to pay the light bill. I'll be right back. As you know, it's been a great year for boat sales. However, it's been really tough for customers to find boats in stock. We're the headquarters in Wilmington, North Carolina for Pair Customs, Sailfish, Sea Chaser, and Carolina Skiff. Our manufacturers are telling us the high demand for boats is going to affect 2021 inventory as well. So if you're looking to get a boat in the spring, you need to come sign up with us now. All right, and we're back. And we're back. Hey, uh, so new this new this year <laughs> is not Terrell telling me jokes. Oh, I miss Terrell's jokes. But it's Emmett sharing with me his New Year's resolutions, and he's got a long list of New Year's resolutions. I don't know 
how much chance he has of success. He shared with me one of his New Year's resolutions. It All was right. to improve his concentration. That is one of his goals in 2021. To improve concentration? Yeah, I asked him how it's going. And? He said, I'm sorry, I wasn't <laughs> listening. What did you say? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's funny. But he has all year. Uh, yeah, that's good. I mean, we're not going to judge him in January. Uh, is he, I mean, is he an ADD? Is he kind of like that? No, man, he's on it. He, yeah. He's um, got so much going on, man. He's one of those give a busy person something to do, they'll get it done. And he gets it done, knocks it out. Got that to-do list. Well, speaking of getting it done, I'm going to show you a fish pick. Get it done. We get Grayson Parker of Newburn with a striper caught on a Zara Spook Jr. while fishing in the Noose River. I say that right? Yeah, man. Close enough. I knew I could read. Mommy said I could. I got you did it. great. Man, what a fish. Good fish. A good kid with a fish, man. We all love a kid catching a fish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was better than uh, better than that one picture that we had on the last show of me catching a pit. Whatever. doesn't matter. That one episode where I was holding the, uh, whatever that fish was called. I'm on a fishing podcast. What the hell? I don't know. what. <laughs> who cares? Um, It was a shad, <laughs> but that episode isn't going to run until after this one. Oops. <laughs> so. Oops. We'll do a little Pulp Fiction. Hey, well, you guys get to look forward to a picture of me that's holding the shad. That's right. That's a tease. Is that called a tease in the business? That is what it, yeah. See, I was promoting the next show or one of the shows after the show, Gary. Well, here's here's where I want you to direct your efforts now <laughs> is for Billy's best takeaway. All right. Billy's best takeaway at the end of the episode, after I'm done talking with Richard, and he even tells me what river morphology is. I mean, I've, we're going to start there in that section, but I want you to, to give me your Billy's best takeaway. I bet it's where the river morphs. I'm putting my money on it right now. That is a good guess. <laughs> All right. Let's bring in our guest. Let's bring him up. This is Captain Am Richard Andrews of Tar Pam Guide Service. How you doing tonight, Richard? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. It's a it's a joy to have you on the show. No feel like I've known you forever, fished with you a number of times. And, you know, I didn't mention this in our pre-show, but... One of my favorite trips of all time was with Captain Richard Andrews, Tarpam. It's when we took my son Owen, some summer stripers, caught some croakers. And, you know, I don't want to give out too many details because I'm not sure how much of that trip you do. But, man, it was a fantastic—I mean, it still ranks right up there. That was a good time. Yeah, I had, I had a blast. But tonight, we aren't talking about summer. Tonight, we are talking about winter stripers on the lower Roanoke. And we've got a laundry list of things to talk about. Your list of topics is, as I told you, is as impressive a list of topics that I get when people send me in. But before we get to that, as is tradition on the podcast series, I got two questions for you, Richard Andrews. Let me know when you're ready. I am ready. More than ready. First question. Why <laughs> should we listen to what you have to say about a striper? Well, the answer is quite simple, Gary. Um, I fish for those fish more than just about anybody else out there. Um, spend lots of days on the water uh, chasing those fish. Been doing it for 10 years. Um, it's, uh, it's a passion of mine, especially river fishing, especially fishing in a, a flowing river where, where there's current. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm so close to them sometimes. They're almost family members. So uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a weird relationship you develop with these fish over time. But... Uh, but yeah, we're gonna get get in some some serious uh, depth about those fish here shortly, and uh, can't wait to do it. All right, I like that answer. And question number two, as tradition goes, a non-fishing related question. 
I looked at Tar Pam, so I was inspired by the name of your guide service, Tar Pam. So in that spirit, would you happen to know where I come from is called Delmarva. What does Delmarva stand for? Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. Ding, 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 ding. He killed it, Impressive. Billy. What? No sound effects Got for that? Oh. You, would, you would think my production oh. guy had a sound effect for that. I don't <laughs> I have a sound effect. It's a beautiful place, by the way. I've, I mean, I had a great, I had a great upbringing. I loved going. I love going back to Ocean City. But tonight, since we have so much to talk about, your first topic we're talking about, and again, this is winter stripers on the Lower Roanoke. Winter stripers on the Lower Roanoke. Tell me about those fish arriving. Tell me about those fish leaving. Well, first of all, I want to kind of expand this beyond the Roanoke because all of this applies to all three of our major coastal rivers. The Cape Fear would be maybe an exception because it's tidal. Um, maybe up the Cape Fear ways, like once you get out of the tidal zone, it, some of this stuff might apply. But I'm talking about the Roanoke, the Tar, and the Noose. So it'd be the Tar River above Washington, the Roanoke River in, in its entire length, and the Noose River above Newburn. So we're really mainly talking about the flowing portions of the river where you get above town and you kind of start getting out of these wind tidal zones, which we'll, t we'll get into that too. There's a little bit of a wind tidal section of these rivers, but as you get further up, it's, they're always flowing from upstream to downstream, and that's where a lot of this river, these river fishing concepts come into play. Uh, so I will say the arrival and departure of these fish every year is kind of a moving target. I wish I could just set a date for them to arrive every year but i've seen them arrive as as uh as early as the fall like you know november time frame I've, I've had some really good fishing in mid to late november and early december but we've also seen it seen them arrive late in, in mid to late january uh, a lot of that depends on river flow <clears throat> so if you had the a lot of flow coming out of these rivers you've had a lot of rain in the fall which is atypical we had we have in the last few years had a lot of rain in the fall you know, um, this has been a particularly wet fall, early winter. The river's been really high for a number of months now. And what that typically does is get these fish up here earlier. They'll, uh, you know, you would think that when a river's high and the current's fast, it would kind of push them back down the river, but the exact opposite is true. It kind of sucks them up. They feel that current on their nose. They want to go up, 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 up. So, when we see river level fluctuations, a lot of times the fish will uh, migrate up the river ways. And when, uh, when, when the river rises and when the river falls, we'll see the exact opposite occur. The fish will kind of fall back down the river. So in essence, you've got this big vacuum cleaner of a river pulling these, these fish in uh, as soon as it starts to flood. And we've had flooding conditions for the last few months in, in, on the Roanoke. Um, the fish are already up there. Um, you know, they, so they made kind of an early arrival this year. Um, however, they, they, they've been a little bit elusive due to the fact that there's so much water. They've, uh, they're up in the floodplain out of the chan river channel. We'll get into a little bit of that when we talk about, you know, specific locations. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it just all depends on the, the river levels. Um, I've seen years where the river's ba barely trickling. There's hardly any flow. And uh, they don't get there till mid to late January, usually. You'll start to see them migrate in from the sound. Um, and, but usually you can count on them by about the middle part of January. I, I usually start booking my striper trips right after Christmas and between the tar and the rolling eight, which is the two rivers that I mainly fish, 
The tar is usually kind of a plan B for me. Uh, it, it fishes well. Um, it's, you know, you can go out there and bang out 15 to 40 fish a trip usually. Uh, but it doesn't typically have the numbers a Roanoke has where, you know, on a good day you can catch a hundred or more fish. Uh, and on a slower day, you might catch 15 to 40 fish. So I start booking trips about after Christmas and the fish are there all winter. We, you have great fishing in January, great fishing in February. I say January, February, about the same March, early March is good too. And then usually about mid-March, you start to see uh, the water temperatures come up a little bit, and those fish start to move a lot. They're not in the big schools that they normally are in in the winter. They start moving around a lot. They might migrate out. They might migrate up. Uh, they're just on the move, and they can be harder to find then. And so I, I do some striper fishing in March, mid to late March, but I also do a lot of shad fishing. So um, we're busy shad fishing a lot you know, during that time, but a lot of my striper fit, fishing trips in mid to late March and even early April are, are a little bit tougher. You know, we have to do a lot more searching for the fish. Sometimes we'll be fishing out in the sound uh, for them. It can be very good out there at that time of year. And then that kind of takes you right into that pre-spawn period where they're really making that final push up the river. And usually when I start fishing in Weldon, it's about the second week of April. I think my, my, my first trip this year is the 13th of April. And I'll fish till about middle of May. So most of the guys are, that's when they show up about the 10th, 15th of April. And they're up there for about four to six weeks. And then, and then of course you had the postpone fishing after that. Um, I'm starting to get out of this off topic here talking about the spring, but our winter fishing in essence is from Christmas to about the early part of March. That's our really, our, our best window of fishing to answer your question. Um, and then, just as a follow-up, you mentioned river temp. I wonder, because that comes up all the time when we're talking more on the coast type fishing. What is that water temp that starts to signal these fish are going to really get on the move now? Well, um, we, we fish we fish all the way up to the, in, the, in the low 50s. We've had some falls where uh, the water temperature's been kind of high. We've had a warm fall. So I've, I've, I've gotten up there around Christmas time and fished these fish in 50 to 55 degree water. But typically in the winter, it runs in the high 40s, uh, 46 to 50 degrees. And then when we have a really cool period, it'll, it'll drop down into the low 40s, you know, 41, 42 to about 45, 46. I have, I've caught these fish when it's been in the high 30s. Uh, they will bite. They bite a little differently. They don't hit the bait as hard, but you can still catch them when it's that cold. I've, I've, I've fished blizzards. I've fished days where we broke an ice to get out, out out of the boat ramp into the main river and still caught fish. And so these fish are very, they're not, they're not like trout. They do not slow down a whole lot when it gets cold. Uh, if anything, it, it probably gangs them up into bigger groups. Well, what about river morphology, man? I mean, I, th I think that was a great answer to the first question about when to expect the fish arriving and when to expect them leaving. And so now give us your insights on, on the river system itself. Well, Gary, since you're so intrigued with this term, um, morphology is defined as the study of the form of things. So when we're talking about rivers. We're talking about the form of rivers. Um, and our coastal rivers, believe it or not, have typical river features, just like a mountain stream might have. Um, you have, you know, your, your long straight sections or what you, what you would define as the riffle sections, which are typically shallower, uh, less defined channel. Um, there may be a channel over to one side of the river, but usually there's kind of a consistent depth. 
Uh, a lot of our rivers, the straight sections will be, well, the Roanoke's got a little bit more depth, but the, a lot of the sections in the tar, and, and of course this depends on river levels too, might only be 12 to 15 feet deep. And then once you start hitting curvy sections, you'll, you'll hit sections of the river where there's a lot of S turns and multiple curves back to back. And then you'll start hitting the, what I call the, uh, the pool and point bar sequence where you have the inside of a curve of a river is a depositional area where the current's slow. So that deposits the uh, silt and sediment that's being carried down the river on what's called a point bar. And that's why you see sandbars on the inside of a river. The pools are the deepest parts of the river. They're going to be on the outside of the curves. That's where the current hits, hits the beginning part of the pool, which is technically defined as a, it's either a run or a glide. I can't remember. I get them confused, but we can look that up. Um, so either there's a little saying, either run into a pool or glide out or glide in and run out. Anyway, you hit a curve, the current shifts to the outside of the curve and the outside of the curve is always going to be scoured out. The bank's going to be real steep. It's going to be, the, the bed of the river is going to be deeper um, <clears throat> because of the heavier current. You've got hardly any current on the inside of the curve and on the outside of the curve, it's really fast and it's eroding that bank. And actually rivers even migrate uh, laterally uh, towards the pool, pool side of, the, of a river. They'll actually, over time, they might move several yards uh, north or south or whichever way the river is oriented. But I'm getting a little technical here, but <clears throat> these are features that you should be aware of. Now, you, didn't, you don't need an expensive graduate school education like I had to learn about river morphology. You can pick up a book like Dave Rosgen's Applied River Morphology and learn all you want about them, about the different types of rivers, how they're classified. But but our rivers are low gradient coastal plain rivers, and they uh, they do have the same features that a lot of other other rivers in the Piedmont and the mountains have as well. So just being aware of these different sections of the rivers and why why the rivers laid out like it is 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 crucial for for uh, winter striper fishing. I mean. It, it has everything to do with where these fish are going to be. They use depth changes in the, in the bed of the river. They use depth changes coming from one side of the river to the other. Um, and they're, 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 they're picking places where they can, you know, school up and ambush bait easily. And they're, use, they're, they're using currents to do that. And so if, when you account for the current and the features of the river, it, that, you know, they're very predictable on where, on where they can be on, on a given day. Now that can change as water level changes. If you have a really high river where there's a lot of current, sometimes they want to be in the places where, where there's no current or they want to be out of the current adjacent to he heavy current areas. Other times when the river's down and the current's negligible, they might want to get in the, the fastest areas they can find to feed because it's just a, a better ambush place. So these are all factors that you need to be considering as you're out there fishing. That's why I love river fishing so much is because I, I truly do love trying to figure out what kind of water these fish are going to be in every day. And, you know, when you're fishing in the somewhere like Bath Creek for speckled trout, although I love speckled trout, I love red fishing down here in the estuary, there's not, there's not much current other than what the wind's doing to the, you know, just shoving the water around. And so it's like, it's like fishing in a bathtub, but when you're up in the river, you got all this going on and, and you have to just, you know, you, you know, you have to turn on the brain power a little bit and start figuring out. And that's, that's why I really love fishing flowing rivers more than I like fishing out in the estuary. 
Man, you got me excited now about river fishing. I'm already in, and now that I know more about a river than I did a couple of minutes ago, how do I how do I use that knowledge? How does someone use that knowledge to start picking their spots to try to find some fish? Well, I think um, like some of the places that I've been finding fish lately on high water have been places that are outside of the current where the where the current's not moving like if there's a point on the river and the uh the water's coming around the point and it's kind of deflecting out to, towards the middle of the river there's going to be a section behind the point that's where the, the current's going to be slow and uh and it's usually going to be a, a flat there too it's going to be shallower and with with a lot less current and those are the types of places i'm catching my fish right now and i can literally go up the river and just pick out these places and and some days, not every day, but some days just catch fish in almost every place that's similar to that. And so being able to think critically about what's going on with the current and what the bottom's doing and to, to identify depth changes based on these features, that's that's the key to river fishing. Uh, sometimes when they're not up on the banks or they're not on the flats or they're not in places like I just described, they might be out in the main channel. And so they're going to be on ledges, uh, channel ledges. And if you have a straight section of river that's relatively consistent depth, there's there's really no ledge other than the bank. But when you start getting into these S-turn sections and places like that where there's a lot of curves and a lot lot going on, you've got all kinds of ledges. You've got a ledge um, where the where the inside point bar drops off into the pool. You've got a ledge, and without actually diagramming this stuff, it's hard to describe. But I'm trying my best to describe it on the podcast. When you're when you when you're going out of a riffle section, a straight section into a, a pool, you're going to have a depth change where it goes from, let's say, uh, a depth of, say, 12 or 15 feet down into maybe 30 feet. And then when you come out of the pool, it's going to, it's going to come up. It's going to come up from about, let's say your pool, your pool depth is 30 feet. Well, it's going to come, when you come out of that curve, it's going to go into another straight section and it's going to come back up to about 15 feet. So these are the types of things I'm talking about. This is where these fish will school up. I find them in places like that all the time, um, and sometimes they're not in a, in a place any bigger than my boat, uh, but there's a whole school sitting right there, and they're on some kind of depth change like that, and they're using that, that current along the bed of the river as an ambush point. So, th- th- you know, that's, that's why it's important to be able to identify, uh, read the current, and also figure out what the bottom of the river's doing. And you can do that. You don't have to be a river expert and a morphologist to uh you know know what know what these features are you can you can just look at your sonar and just kind of map it out so that helps that helps tremendously it's a great tool to have out there as as a verification tool like we said what about uh tributaries like what about little feeder creeks does that get you excited or it's more about as you've been describing greatly just getting out of the a break in the current well, okay, so you've got the main river channel, and then you've got its interaction with the floodplain and its tributary. So that that's a whole nother topic. Um, the the main river channels, there's a lot going on there. But then, especially the Roanoke River, which has a huge floodplain system, uh, the, the tar and the noose are, are have the same thing, but it's it's not as wide, it's not as dynamic. The Roanoke River has humongous tributaries, these these back sloughs and creeks that that feed these massive swamps and sometimes you'll have uh, drainage coming out of those or even drainage coming out of the banks 
And when you have that interchange between the floodplain and the river channel, those, those can be great areas to fish. Um, it all, and that, that kind of segues into the topic of river level. Um, you know, when, it, when it's down within its banks, we, we fish just, the, we just focus on the river channel itself. But when you have a, uh, a high water, you know, situation, it changes everything. We'll, we'll, we'll fish up on the banks a lot more. We'll fish on the creeks and tributaries, the mouths of the tributaries. So high water uh, gives us a lot more options uh, in terms of the, in terms of our in, interacting with our floodplain more than just the river channel itself. And so, just so I'm clear, when you were in our notes, when you're saying using sonar as a verification tool, that was using sonar as a verification tool as it goes to river bottom and the 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 depths and changes, well, as opposed to well, hey, I'm seeing fish on my sonar. Well, no, well, both. So you're going to use your sonar to map out the river bottom, and but you, you, what I like to do is try to use my brain first, and then use my sonar as a verification tool. So I'm sitting there saying, okay, let's go check out this this little section of river and try to find that sweet spot, that ledge where they're going to be sitting. And so you you know you're you're idling over it with your sonar, looking at it, going, okay, there's a cool depth change. I'm coming out of this pool that's 40 feet deep, and I'm coming up this this steep ledge coming in the straight section so there's a huge depth change it's going up onto a flat maybe and hell it might be a uh, a depth change from 40 feet to five feet in a matter of 50 yards so i'm looking at that and i'm sitting there you, you know using my sonar as a verification tool for the bottom but i'm also looking at the bottom to see if i mark any fish and um so stripers on most units when I first started guiding, I used a black and light white Lawrence unit. It, that thing was a dinosaur. I mean, I could barely see what I was looking at, but it would mark fish. And, and what I had to learn was how to identify what, what, how to see what the stripers look like versus the other fish. Because all these rivers have a ton of gar in them, and the gar clutter up your screen tremendously. Um, you can tell the difference between a gar and a striper. Usually your stripers, your gar are bigger marks, longer marks, depending on your unit it, your marks are going to look like a maybe upside down boomerang or if you're using 2d versus high def sonar or just a long line your guard typically going to be bigger marks longer marks your striper and, and a lot of them are going to be suspended I, I don't i don't mark a lot of guard that are just glued to the bottom but your your stripers typically are going to be glued to the bottom so if i'm if i'm sitting there marking the bottom i see Dot, 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 right, right along the bottom. And sometimes it'll even be layered. When it's layered, that's when there's a huge school there. But I, I, I've stopped on a little mark where I, where I might have got eight little dots on the bottom just in one little short section of river and fished it and caught 30 fish out of that. So it's so that's what I'm talking about by using that sonar. Most typically, I mean, we, we certainly have days where we just don't get a lot of good marks. And so we're fishing blind a lot. But most days when the fish are really there and, and, and we have good fishing, most of the time I don't, we don't even put our baits in the water until I get a good mark. We're right around. I say, guys, just, just uh, bear with me. You know, we're going to idle around a lot, look around, and we checking spots. And when I get the mark, I'll tell you where, where, to, where to cast. So we get the mark. I'll usually position my boat off of the school, and, you know, we'll figure out our casting angle. I'll say, all right, guys, they're right over there in front of that tree. Cast over there, up up river, let it let it drift down and bounce the bottom right over where the mark was. And that's how we fish. And sometimes we'll find uh, spots where the current's so so swift 
that we might ha have to just vertical jig. We might just have to drop them straight down and even have the boat drifting with the current somewhat just, just to be able to get the baits down to where they are. So we might do it that way as well. So this is where I was going to sort of push the conversation, but you've already got there. Like we've got our spot, you know, whether, again, you just are going from where the fish should be or whether you verified on a sonar. So when you're, let's not, let's talk first about when the tide isn't so strong. Are you anchoring? Are you using trolling motor? Like walk me, walk me through the process. You already did it briefly, but walk me through the process a little bit more. I'm on your boat. You find a spot you like, what can I expect? So I'll, uh, I'll get a mark ideally. And so I know exactly where the fish are sitting. I'll pull the boat kind of off the mark, you know, within casting distance of, of the area that we're going to cast to drop my trolling motor in the water. And there, it's very rare that I, that we, it, it sometimes it, we, we encounter situations where the current's running so hard or the water's so high, the current's so fast. And then you'll have wind going like a windy day where it's going right straight down, blowing straight down the river. And, and there's some places on the rolling deck where that it's like a wind tunnel sometimes. And, 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 and you just can't hold, even with a 36 volt motor, you cannot hold the boat in the current. And I, in those situations, you might just have to drift through the spot or even anchor up in a rare instance. But most of the time, 90% of the time, I'm dropping the trolling motor and I'm putting it on spot lock and just holding the boat right there. And so we're casting to, towards the mark. I'm telling the guys and say, look, get it upriver so that you, you give it time to, to, for it to drop down to the bottom. Because when we're throwing these plat soft plastics, there's some situations where the fish are suspended sometimes. If they're maybe on a bank, they might be up at the top of the bank or in the middle part of the bank. But let's just say I'm riding over the, you know, out in the kind of the middle of the river. I'm on a ledge and I see them on the bottom. This is what I'm talking about. So we'll just throw up river of the uh, mark and, and let your bait sink down and then just pop them and then let them fall and then pop them and let them fall. You're just bouncing that bait right, right across the bottom over the mark. And usually, you know, you get that first one to bite, they'll all start biting. So that's that's how it usually works. And so I'm not I'm not even reeling. I'm just getting it out there, letting it get to the bottom, maintaining contact, and then just popping it. No reeling. The current is doing all the work. Usually the current's kind of fast to where you know you'll cast, let's say, 45 degrees upriver or even perpendicular to the current. Usually about perpendicular to the curve. I I, I try to tell people not to cast upriver too much because Normally, when you cast up river, that thing will just, it's like the, the current just sucks it right down to the bottom. It'll get hung on something real fast. But if you cast at a slight angle to the current, like 45 degrees up current or perpendicular 90 degrees or 45 degrees down current, you know, when I'm talking about cro casting cross current here. Yes. Um, you, you just let it go down and just, you're just jigging it as it swings. You know, your bait will just be swinging from, from up river right on through. And right, right down river, and usually once it swings all the way back around the back of the boat, that's when you crank it up and cast again. Most of the bites come on the fall. Almost all of them, yeah. When you're jigging, absolutely. And yeah. it is imperative to be maintaining contact with the bottom for the most very, part. Very important, and that's where most of my clients had the most trouble is just letting it sink long enough to, to get the bottom. So, so the ideal cast is to have a is to have bottom contact every time you let it fall. You feel it hit the bottom, then lift it right back up immediately. And then let it fall back down until it hits the bottom, lift it right back up. And <clears throat> that is important. You get way more bites like that 
but it's you also have to have a tight line while you're doing that and that's actually a deceivingly hard technique if you've never fished a river with a half three eighths or half ounce jig casting cross current to to a spot that's it's a tough thing to learn so i have to work with my people throughout the day and teach them you know hey you need to let you need to let that thing drop about another three seconds or you know don't don't drop your rod tip so fast because you generate too much slack uh, you'll never feel the bite you know I'll, I'll, sometimes i'll see somebody don't have too much slack in their line i'll watch their line jump and they had a bite but they never felt it so it's just a, a learned technique um that's when we're, we're jigging in deeper water, like out, you know, out off the bank or on a ledge or something like that. We also fish shallow sometimes if we're fishing up on the on the banks or up on a flat. We're usually throwing swim baits uh, a little bit. That's when I usually go to the quarter ounce or three eighths hit uh, jig heads. Most of the time we're jigging in the Roanoke River, especially out in the open water. We're throwing half ounce jig heads, and I don't like to throw much. I haven't found many situations where I needed. Uh, more weight than half ounce. Uh, I've got some five eighths and I've got some uh, three quarter ounce jig heads and I hardly ever use them. But uh, half ounce usually will do the trick in most situations. Um, the stripers are not like trout. They're not picky about the rate of fall. It's, it's more important for the, you know, to, for you to have enough weight to get it down there and to be able to feel it hit the bottom. And so talk to me a little bit more about terminal tackle because people love specifics. And so you've been specific about the weight of the jig head. Um, I guess I would say any particular jig head you're fond of these days, but more importantly, what are you putting on the jig head? Well, okay, I'll go into that. I have a, a, a man in Kenley who's a client of mine who pours all my jig heads for me. He does a great job. I, use, I don't use any other, anything, any other baits other than Z-Man. They're so, super durable. They catch fish. I mean, there's just no reason not to use any other brand, in my opinion. So I've been using Z-Mans for 10 years exclusively. Uh, he pours me uh, just unpainted jig heads um, in bulk. I usually order about, I usually go through about five to 800 a season. Um, we, you know, we get hung up a lot, so it's just disposable. Um, but they have a double barb on them, like, like, you, like you've seen the trout eyes jig heads that they make. Uh, that's, that's crucial for the Z-Man so they don't slip down. You have a good double barb jig head and they'll stay on there without having to glue them. And, you know, you push them, you shove them up there real good and seat them properly. They'll, they'll stay on there just fine. Now fish occasionally, if the bait gets worn out, it starts to get worn out. The fish will start pulling it off the jig head and then you change them. But, um, so I use those three eighths and half ounce jig heads, just, uh, regular hooks. And I use, uh, the uh, snake locks, the TT Lure snake locks jig heads, they're a weedless jig head that Z-Man offers. Uh, I use those a lot um, when I'm in an area that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty tough fishing and there's a lot of snags if we're throwing up on the bank or even fishing the flats in shallow water where there's a lot of logs and blowdowns and things like that. I'll go totally weedless and that, we still get hung up a little, but it, it I bet it, I mean, whereas you know, we're fishing a section of river and maybe lose 10 baits uh, on regular jig heads. We might lose one or two on, on the weedless. So it's, it helps a lot. It helps out a lot. It saves me some baits. Um, let's see. I use, so I use half ounce jig heads when I'm fishing um, out more, you know, in the deeper part of the, the channel. And I use three eighths when I'm fishing up, up close to the banks or up on the flats. And basically, when I'm when I'm swim bait fishing, I use three eighths, and when I'm when I'm fishing with uh, 
dirt, soft plastic dirt baits, I use half ounce most of the time. Unless unless I'm in a shallow situation like a ten to fifteen foot water where I where I just don't simply need a you know, low current where I just don't need a half ounce. Uh, and it, like there's a lot of water on the tar that I'll that I'll fish out in the middle of the river where I just don't need a half ounce. You know, three eighths is enough. What about but those? I, uh, I'm sorry, man. What about those soft plastics? Like you got a certain color, you got a style. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure yeah, you were yeah, headed I, there. I didn't mean to cut you, cut in. No, that's okay. Um, I um I use for ten years. I've used. I mean, I started out using the the three inch minnow, little the little paddle tail that they make and. I mean, I've, I've fished entire winter seasons using nothing but that, that bait, and that's it. Um, and caught a lot of, you know, a lot of fish. The first time I ever went up there to check it out, when I first started my guide service, we caught 146 fish the first day I ever went up there. And uh, I was using that little white three-inch minnow. That's all I use all day. And I, and I think for the next couple of years, I saw the fish was white and chartreuse. I mean, re- keeping it simple, I mean, Fishing white when, you know, white will work when it's fairly muddy sometimes, but white, we generally throw the white when it's a little bit clear and, and when the water's a little bit dirtier, we'll, we'll, we'll switch to chartreuse. So that's how I started fishing, but I've definitely expanded uh, my offerings since then. We, we fished a lot of jerk baits, the four and five inch uh, streaks. I, I use the five inch streaks a lot. Um, the jerk shads, they're good. The center jerk shads. Um, and I, I've started using a lot of the diesel minnows. I use the four and five inch diesels now a lot. I've been using the four inch diesel a ton lately. Uh, fishing a little bit shallower um, with the three eighths ounce head. It's great. And it's, it's, it's just a, a really good bait. They really love it. I, I've fished the swimmer some in the past. That was their, their original swim bait. For some reason, that, that bait just doesn't get bit like that, as well as the diesel. Uh, the, the diesel just has a, a, a vibration of thump that they, they really like. Um, so the four and five inch diesel, the four and five inch jerk shad and streak, and then the three inch minnow. And that's all I've ever used. And I keep the color simple. I, I've expanded a little bit past white and chartreuse. I mean, I'll use like, like ice or open and night or, you know, something like pearl blue glimmer, something that's a little bit what I would call kind of an off white or maybe even a natural color, like a smoky shad or, or I like that smelt color a lot. That's a good color um, in clear water. And then when it's dirty, I'll, I'll, I'll use like a hot chartreuse or space guppy, which is the chartreuse with the gold flex in it, uh, like a electric chicken or even a solid pink. A solid pink's a good bait. Um, so anything, you know, brighter colors, gaudy colors when the water's muddier and then whites and off whites when... Um, when it's when it's clear it's pretty simple i mean i really i, I could fish two colors white and chartreuse all season and be just fine but I, I you know i branched out a little bit i might use about four or five different colors now so i'm proud of you man i'm proud of you for branching yeah. out thank you thank you're not too old to change a little bit you're still uh, I mean, I, I like i'm it. definitely <laughs> set my ways but i'm i'm, I'm open-minded still hey what about scent you know is scent important with winter stripers with any stripers uh, well, you know, it just depends on the fish. Um, when you find a good hungry school, it doesn't matter. But if, if they're, I have found some fish that are a little bit, um, uh, reluctant to bite. Um, I've, I've definitely found plenty of fish that won't bite at all, but, but sometimes you'll find some where they're just bumping it a little bit, uh, or you're throwing it, maybe you're throwing a swim bait and they're just kind of, uh, just not eating it all, the whole way. They're just kind of, you know, you're getting a bump, 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 but you're, you can't hook them. 
I will definitely throw some Procure on there. I mean, it's it. I'm a firm believer in that. I have seen it hun- literally hundreds of times where I encounter fish like that, trout too, but stripers especially, where they're just light biting, I guess. And and I'll put a big gob of that Procure on there, and man, very next cast, wham, next cast, wham. I mean, it's it's. I've seen it happen too much to not be a believer in it. So always keep a bottle of that on on the boat. I I, I get the big bottle, the uh, the guide size, and um, I use Menhaden, a mullet, and the inshore formula. And that's about all I use. I mean, Menhaden mullet will work just fine. I I don't really see much of a difference in either one of them. Or there's really not a standout flavor. I I, I just think having something on there helps. Well, man, this is all. This has already been a wealth of information. I feel we're here coming at the end of the podcast of your podcast. So this is typically the time where I say, "Hey, man, is there anything that you want to get out that you'd like to share that I didn't set you up with a question, and or you know any like sort of final thoughts for people who are intrigued by winter stripers, you know, winter striper fishing on the rivers." Well, I, I love these podcasts because it's a great way to get to know somebody without actually meeting them. And I hope you've maybe gotten to know me a little bit better tonight. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm describing everything and kind of just, you know, brainstorming here on, on in front of the computer. But if you really want to take this to the next level and learn some of this stuff, you need to get on the water with me um, and see it and, and see it, see it, you know, apply it. And so I would definitely encourage you to reach out. If you like river fishing and like catching stripers, I'm, I'm kind of partial, you know, myself, but I think this, the winter striper fishing on the lower Roanoke is arguably the best winter fishing in the state of North Carolina. There's some good winter fisheries, but I mean, from, from a number standpoint, from a quality of fish standpoint, from a scenery standpoint, it is gotta be up there at very high on the list. So if you haven't seen it or if you're just interested in it, Give me a call, send me an email, and uh, I'd love to get you out there and show you show you what we do. Hey, and then finally, Richard, after uh, give me the quick highlight reel of what you're doing in the summer, what you're doing in the fall. So my my uh, year is basically divided in half. I fish the I fish the rivers for the stripers uh, from about Christmas time until about mid May. I do I do, I have started doing a lot more shad fishing in March. Uh, I've grown my shad business quite a bit. Um, I love. I personally, that's one of my favorite fish in the world. Probably my favorite type of fishing throughout the year that I do. Uh, so I, I, I shad fish a lot and starting in late February, running right on through March and early April. But most of my year from Christmas until the middle of May when I get done with welding is um, stripers on the river. And then, you know, I'm in welding from, you know, mid-April through mid-May. And then once those fish leave, we do do some post-spawn fishing for them when it's really good. Uh, we'll, we'll go down down river again and fish them uh, in late May and early June, and then I'm I'm pretty much after that I'm on the Pamlico the rest of the year. Uh, I live in Bass, so you know fishing at home here in Pamlico, Plungo, and uh, out in the Sound. And throughout the summer, of course, we do the big reds in August and September. That's a big draw, and then the fall fishing um, in the, on the Pamlico takes me right right back on through the holidays again. So mid May through Christmas, Pamlico. Uh, Christmas through mid-May, uh, river striper fishing. Well, Richard, it has been a treat to talk to you. Man, I had such an easy job. I ask a couple of questions, and then you just share. 
And I know our viewers and listeners are appreciate anyone who's willing to share as you did, man. So I thank you for your time. Already looking forward to our next podcast, you know, once we set that up and, uh, you know, enjoy your time on the water, man. You got me. I know you got me excited for winter striper fishing. I can't imagine it wasn't contagious. I'd love for you to come back with me sometime. It's been a while since we fished together, but we've had some good times. Yeah, I've had the 100-plus day of quality stripers with you, and it is time to revisit my Richard. I was just thinking it's time for me to revisit my Richard Andrews fishing friendship. I, I like how you think. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. And and y'all y'all take care and good night. All right, man. Good night, Richard. My goodness, Gary, what a show. Yeah, man. You know what I call that? I call that money. Look at that. What a great <laughs> sound effect. Dude, that just took this whole thing. You need a raise. You level, deserve man. a raise. I do, man. Especially after that episode. Nobody's putting out episodes like that. That was fa- I, I mean he made your job easy, too. Right? He made me look brilliant. Even though I didn't know what morphology meant, he made me look smart. Morphology, I learned that. Uh, what is your best takeaway? Billy's best takeaway. Well, as you know, Gary, I've been striper fishing with you on a boat before, and I didn't do well. And I think it was the tight line thing. When he said tight line and like that was you know something to always keep in mind, I was like, man, I bet that's what I suck at is like trying to keep that consistency keep it on the bottom pop it keep it but also keeping that line tight during that motion that movement so that, that was kind of one of my like oh because i'm all you know like how can i better my skill set and so i haven't heard that and definitely don't do that so yeah he identified it and I, i've seen it on the boat i mean i've struggled with it i've enjoyed having the captain sort of guide you through it and you know you're watching the line and the line go you know fall on the water surface to can be an indicator. There's all kinds of ways I'm sure he helps the people yeah. on the boat. But it is it is the trick, man. It is the crux. That's cool. Well, I'm going to have to jump on that fisherman's post privilege and get on that boat with you guys. <laughs> Nobody's giving me a boat, so I'm going to start just inviting myself along to these trips. Come on. <laughs> well, Gary, man, it's been great. Uh, once again, thanks for a great episode. Uh, uh, Captain Richard Andrews, thank you so much once again for an amazing episode. And to shout out to our sponsors one more time, Marine Warehouse. Love those guys. So go check them out and get in line for that boat because inventory, like they said in the commercial, might be low. So get in there and get it now. And, you know, and they're doing service and they're doing parts. So even yep. if you're not in the mood market for a new boat, man, they can be a go-to for service, a go-to for yeah. parts. Absolutely, man. Well, Gary, we'll see you next time, buddy. Next time. Fisherman's boat.